0: This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition is supported by an educational grant from Knapp Pharmaceuticals Limited.
1: Dear friends and colleagues, it is my great pleasure to welcome our members, guests, and of course the fantastic faculty, both international and homegrown as well as both our loyal and new exhibitors to this year's British Pain Society annual scientific meeting. This meeting is truly significant, as it is the 50th such meeting. The Intractable Pain Society of Great Britain and Ireland was formed in 1967, making our society probably the oldest pain society in the world, and this our 50th anniversary. Their first meeting was in Manchester with 17 attendees. Since that meeting, we have grown in strength and we have nearly 600 attendees at this year's meeting. This year, in recognition of the achievements of the British Pain Society, we'll be launching the National Awareness Campaign. All of you can and please must help by raising the awareness of those living with pain we can also raise awareness of what you do to support the individual living with pain, their carers and the family, and what the British Pain Society does to support you to provide the best evidence-based multidisciplinary team approach. Thank you all for your support in attending this, the 50th ASM of the British Pain Society.
0: The British Pain Society started off as a small group of like-minded doctors interested in pain back in 1967. Today, its membership has grown to over 1,200. So, 2017 is its 50th anniversary, an anniversary celebrated by members and delegates at its annual scientific meeting this year in Birmingham and we in pain concern made our own little contribution to the celebrations by inviting the current president dr andrew Baranovsky, professor sir michael bond one of the world's leading authorities on the psychological aspects of pain and one of that small group of like-minded people who back in 1967 set the british pain society in motion to join Heather Wallace, the driving force of pain concern. Heather has just been made an honorary member of the British Pain Society in recognition of her tireless work on behalf of those of us who live with chronic pain. I started the conversation rolling by asking Sir Michael, as elder statesman of the group, what drove him to enter the world of pain. I started
2: pain research, or an interest in pain, in 1963 when I was uh, given the task of doing an M.D. on chemotherapy in women with carcinoma of the cervix. And during the course of my work, I observed that even though they had the same condition at the same level of development and were getting basically the same treatment, the pain they experienced seemed to differ quite a lot. And I wondered why, what could be the reason? Now it happened that about the same time I changed over from surgery for reasons which I don't need to go into and I became a trainee in the University Department of Psychiatry in Sheffield and wanted to carry this uh, interest in pain with me. And as it happened there were two people in the department, one a man called Harold Mersky, who is world famous in pain research. And literature and the other is a man called Issy Polovsky who was also in his time very famous and so I had these two men who were eminently able to help and I said what we need to do is think of a way of measuring pain in the women that I've been studying and Polovsky and I set about it and in 1966 we published the first account Of the measurement of pain using something called an analog scale which is really a 0 to 10 scale and that's how i got started in 1967 and i don't know how it happened i found myself with a group of anaesthetists consultant anaesthetists i think it was in Salford Uh, they gathered to talk about the treatment of pain they were all interested in and practicing pain management by various forms of injection put it that way and over the next two years they had further discussions about establishing a society and in 1969 they decided to found the British Intractable Pain Society. So I was there at the initial discussions and I was the only person there who was not a consultant and not an anaesthetist and I happened to have in my pocket the slides I had used in a talk elsewhere the previous day about pain and personality in women with carcinoma of the cervix and they said would you like to give us the talk so i did that's how i got involved with what became to begin with the intractable pain society i mean the treatment of pain at that time was quite different from uh, the way we approach the problems now for example it was the pain that was treated not the person So as a consequence, people like those women I was talking about earlier, would all be given the same drugs for their pain, however much they had or didn't have. And uh, one of the things I did was to measure pain using the analog scale in a ward of women who had painful conditions of various kinds and a ward full of men. And I divided the drugs they had into three groups, into powerful, medium, and, and mild. Well the first thing uh, I noticed was that the men were never given the powerful drugs, irrespective of what their scores were. And I asked why and the reason I was given was that men are expected to bear pain well. Now that was a cultural characteristic uh, that was quite strong at that time. The second thing was that having recorded their pain levels amongst the women who did all receive analgesics, there was no relationship between what they were given and what they recorded. So the tablets could have been in a bucket in the middle of the room and each one could have taken anyone they fancied. And the result would have been much the same, I suppose. But it showed that um, pain medication was given according to a ritual that had been established over the years. For this condition you give this, and for that one you give that, and all that almost immediately changed. We realized that this was completely an unacceptable way of dealing with pain problems. And at that time, relating, getting the person to tell you about their pain and measuring their pain and looking at the medication that might be needed for that pain became very much more common practice where I was at the time. So that's where it was when I started. The the individuals who came together felt there was a degree of isolation and what they wanted uh, to do was to come together to talk about ways of improving pain management. That's how it started. I mean the first 10 years almost it was consultants in anaesthetics only and then senior registrars were brought in but it didn't become multi-professional till about 1987 after the foundation of uh, the International Association. Which was founded as a multi-professional organization. So the psychological and social aspects of pain in those early years wasn't their major consideration, although they acknowledged that these issues were something that should be considered. But they came together to share knowledge. The, the early pain meetings it was primarily the presentation of anecdotal material. This is how I do it. I've done 10 cases of this and these are what my results are. There was no question of people doing trials of any description but they were transferring information from you know one to another and presumably improving their technique and so forth until ultimately it was decided it had to be put onto standardised footing of membership, proper structure and Mark Swerdlow was the man who was really the driving force behind that uh, and he became the first chairman I think he was of the society. And
1: most of the members, if not all of the members, apart from yourself, yes. were anesthetists. They were yes, and they were interested in the injection treatment management. Correct of they pain were. yes, um, and of course the injections have changed over the years yes. because they were uh, some of the injections were what we might call destructive neurolytic yes. uh, treatments, which we. Rarely used. There's some specific indications in cancer patients, some specific indications for spinal pain
2: where we use uh, those yeah. sorts of things. The only uh, other group of people who were doing that kind of work were neurosurgeons, and they did operations for facial pain, trigeminal neuralgia, and they did operations on the spinal cord for cancer pain. So, what did they think of you? I don't know really. I was <laughs> <laughs> sort of, uh, kind of well, I, w- I was at least in neurosurgery. At that point but they seemed to accept me without any um, hard feelings or I think they were quite interested because I brought to the proceedings a slightly different slant. See at that time it wasn't until 1964 that psychologists actually had a clinical position in the health service. There were psychologists working in the health service but they were doing things like intelligence testing in mental hospitals. And um, they did the thing called the Rorschach test, or ink blot test, where interpretations were made of what patients said about what they saw in the ink blot. I mean, it was not clinical psychology as we know it. But then, uh, Professor Trethowan, who was a professor here in Birmingham, was given the task of carrying out an investigation into whether or not psychologists should become clinically trained and should work clinically and the answer was yes they should and that's when clinical psychology in Britain appeared on the scene or began to appear as a profession and in my department in Sheffield we had a course usually 18 entrants a year of people who had a psychology degree who then came in and did a training in clinical psychology and. Uh, That's how it all started with respect to psychology.
0: But at what point did you realise that there was more to pain, that the brain was involved as much as anything else? Well,
2: if you think back to what I said about when I entered the Department of Psychiatry for training, and I encountered those two people, Harold Mursky was working on depression and pain, and uh, had shown that 45% of people with severe depression have pain. It's part of the depressive illness and it goes when you treat the depression. There are other people who become depressed because they have pain, but these are people who develop pain because they are depressed. So there was clearly a relationship between mind and pain, obvious at that stage. And the other guy, Issy Polovsky, he was interested in hypochondriasis, what was called illness behavior. In other words, how did pain show itself in terms of alterations in behaviour and was it possible to approach the management of pain through analysing the behaviour and helping to change that and their experiences. So I I learnt about these connections right at the beginning. Pain sometimes occurs in the most extraordinary circumstances and pain that is driven by psychological factors. This relates to a girl of about 20, 22 and uh, she was admitted to the hospital where I was surgically training and the surgeon who admitted her said he didn't think that her abdominal pain which she'd had for six months had any obvious physical cause but he wanted to check so would I go and see her given my interest in these things. So I went to see her at bedtime which is a good time to see people, They're, they're more relaxed then you know and I said to her this pain you know in your stomach and, and uh, how long has it been there she said six months and I said did it start suddenly she said yes and I said well did anything happen about that time that was significant in your life and she said well on, on the, the day before it started I went with my boyfriend to a dance and we were going to get engaged and uh, when we were on the dance floor somebody came up to him and said I wouldn't get engaged to her unless you know about this. Whereupon she got hold of her lovely red hair and locks and pulled them off. And underneath she was bald. So somebody on the dance floor had pulled her wig off and exposed her to everybody as a bald young woman. And she fainted and was taken home. And the next day she had abdominal pain and every time she tried to go out of the house the pain became much worse. So in other words, it was protecting her against further exposure and embarrassment so we made the connections also she had vir- virtually no fingernails and toenails she had some uh, abnormality of the production of keratin which makes hair and so had her mother And I pointed out her mother had managed to marry and was successful and so forth and this is something that she will be able to get over and she did the pain disappeared and the pain appeared where a year before she'd had an appendectomy And that's something else I've learnt about, that kind of event. The pain quite often appears in a site where there has been previous surgery, suggesting that there, if you like, there's a memory trace that still exists and can be lit up by psychological factors.
1: You you can see that when you do an epidural on someone for labour or whatever, and then you actually... Uh, trigger off a pain from previous surgery because again you're manipulating the nervous system yes. but in a completely different way, which yes. is a physical way rather than That's a psychological Yes, So yes. the nervous system is is quite uh, complex from that point of view.
2: Well it's certainly, um, uh, the, the traces of what has happened are mm. still there quite a long time afterwards But what happens in the case of the uh, women who you were dealing with, does their pain disappear again. Oh, It can become persistent, yeah, oh, so you can, can, become, re, you can react, to, yeah. you can open
1: up the pathways and, 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 and they, they can it's as if open. it's their vulnerable, oh. vulnerable pathway and because I guess once you've opened it up then the, the, the risk is that um, it reinforces itself.
2: When I was a resident in uh, neurosurgery and I was on duty one night at the hospital and telephone rang and a, a woman crying on the other end and said I want to kill myself and I said hang on, you know, what, what's wrong? She said, I want to kill myself. I've got this terrible pain. I said, uh, well, where is it? She said, it's, it's in my back and legs. Oh, hasn't anybody dealt with it? She said, oh, yes, I'm, I'm attending Mr. So-and-so. And she named one of the surgeons. And he said that he's going to do major surgery on me to deal with it. But I can't wait any longer. So I arranged for her to be admitted, and she came in. And I then went to bed when she came in, having examined her. And she didn't just have pain, she was paraplegic. She arrived in a wheelchair, and she'd been like that for, I think it was three or four years anyway, plus pain. So about 6 o'clock in the morning, I got a telephone call. When I come over to the ward, the lady was having epileptic seizures. And indeed she was. She was in status epilepticus. And we dealt with that. But it was about 36 hours before she was fully confus mentis again and I went to see her in, in the ward. I said, how are you feeling Mrs X? And she said, oh I feel rather groggy doctor. What's been happening to me? I said, well you've not been very well but I'm pleased to say you know you haven't made a good recovery. How are your legs? She had this big bed cage over her legs. She said, oh they're alright aren't they? So I got the ward sister to lift off the cupboards and I said, well let me see she moved her legs up and down the bed and I said oh that's very good and the sister was such astonished she said well why are you interested in my legs I said well when you came in you couldn't move them at all she said oh no that wasn't me I said you came in a wheelchair she said no I well I can't remember that at all so I went off and I found the surgeon who was going to operate on her and I said I want you to come and see something I said would you like to show Mr X your legs she said, You're all very interested in my legs. I said, yes, "We are." <laughs> so <laughs> then the same thing happened. He just turned pale and walked away, realising what could have happened and hadn't. So I said, "Well, that's fine, Mrs X. We'll get the physios in and uh, we'll you'll get walking and uh, be fine." I then said to, her, "Well, when all this started, were there any real, really serious problems in your life?" She said, "Well, there was a big one, and there was a steaming row." she became paraplegic you know it was a psychologically induced paralysis with pain
1: but it's a real paralysis isn't it in the yes. sense oh, because, yes. because uh, yes, i course. mean i can tell similar stories it switched off. of um, i can think of a patient in particular who kept going to casualty yes. with paralysis and then it would get better and so on and so she came to see me and she was fine and went to leave the hospital and then I got a phone call saying this lady can't move her legs and so on. When I did all the reflexes, this, that and the (laughs) other, you know, she was paralysed and you say, okay, (laughs) get her her admitted. But over time, you know, it, it became apparent that in this lady's case that the severity of the pain was such that to a certain extent she was dissociating from her limbs. And turning off the connection, and I think we can all feel like that sometimes, can't we? We feel like we can't get out of bed or whatever, and it is really just taking that to another another level. So it's a real physical problem, but generated from a psychological. Side. Yes, it's generated from and, psychological. And I guess we also have to we have to really appreciate that these things are, are really physical. And, that it, yes. and as you alluded earlier about the depression. Uh, yes. You know, depression can cause pain, but obviously those living in pain can feel as if they're being tortured on a regular basis, sure. and therefore they're going to become depressed. Yeah. And there's a strong link between thinking about your pain, so this emotional thing which we call ruminating and dwelling on things, yeah. and depression. The more you are aware of your circumstances, the more likely you are to be yeah. uh, depressed. And one of the big risks. Which I'd be interested in having your opinion on, Michael. Is, is actually, if you treat the depression, you can actually make the patients worse because you can actually remove something that is a protective factor for them. And yes. you can remove something uh, which is actually protecting them from self harm because they realize actually my pain is bad, but the depression has been protecting them. I mean, have you come across that?
2: Well, <clears> I ran a, um, an inpatient pain rehabilitation service for about 10 years at Garden Naval Hospital. Basically we had three groups of people. We had people who were not coping with pain that they had been left with as a consequence of trauma of one sort or another. And they came from various departments uh, and they were on massive doses of analgesics, often dihydrocodine. The second group were those who came in with a depressive illness and pain, but no cause for pain other than the fact it was part of their depression. And the third group of people were those who had pain which was clearly being a, a, an, it was an integral part of the way they managed their lives. Mm. We did well with the people who came in with pain as a consequence of their trauma, whatever that was. And if they were habituated to dihydrocodeine, we had a five week withdrawal programme. So we would give them their regular dose of dihydrocodine in cherry flavoured syrup. We told them that over five weeks the amount would be reduced. and In fact, the last week, there wouldn't be any dihydrocodeine at all. They didn't know that. The most difficult part of the whole operation was getting them off the cherry-flavoured syrup at the end, <laughs> which there was nothing. But we did a lot of treatments of that kind. And um, the depressed group, we treated as depressed patients. And, of course, obviously uh, went into the background of why the depression was there and why this defence mechanism, as you might call it, was operating So it required possibly psychotherapy, one kind or another, as well as antidepressant therapy to unlock and resolve the problems. The third group, those who used pain as a way of managing their lives, were almost impossible to deal with. We never got very far, or if we did, it was a revolving door. You know They do quite well, and they go out, two months later, three months later, they'd be back again with the same problem.
0: We've been talking a lot about patients as subjects, the third party who is examined and treated and whatever. Yes. But when did patients become important to the management of pain? As people, you mean? Yes. A person as opposed to a patient.
2: Good question. I suppose it began to um, appear when we decided how to define pain. Again, going back to, I think, round about 1976, Uh, ISP set up a a working group and I was part of the group who worked steadily on what the fundamentals were for the experience of pain. And the definition came out of that as an experience which has physical, psychological and social components. I can't remember the exact wording, but I mean, that's basically what it is. That was the essence really, that definition of the change over to seeing pain as a multi dimensional experience, and there could be any or all of these operating at the same time or differently. And, and that
1: was key to how we now assess patients That's as well. Right. Yes. So, uh, when you are looking at managing your patient as <coughs> a whole, the, ind- as the individual as a whole, you're looking yeah. at the effect on the uh, social side, uh, relationships, you know, the family, um, the ability, the physical ability to do things, whether that be work or even simple things like going out for walks and so on, as well as the emotional effect on their thought processes, what (coughs) they think about their pain and the emotional uh, responses all that drives and so on because, and that's where pain management programs come into this and they're usually run uh, patients assessed by doctors to make sure things aren't being missed to give the explanation but then they're run by psychologists, physiotherapists, nurses. Um, There's also
2: um, something else that arose out of that a definition and that was another way of measuring pain. It's called the McGill Pain Questionnaire and what Ron Melzack and his group in Montreal did was to analyse the words that people use to describe pain and categorise them into emotional, cognitive, can't remember what they all are but and then the strength of the words is uh, identified if you might say one to ten and by building up a picture a word picture of the pain you can define the nature of the pain and at the end there is an analog scale an overall one to ten measurement but it's primarily used for research it's not something mm. you use in the clinic mm-hmm. is it so
1: one of the things that Um, I I believe is going to be announced soon is that NICE is going to take on board looking at guidelines for pain medicine um, and the Bishop Pain Society is involved in that and that would be from primary community care through to specialised services. But as a part of that, linking what you're saying, one of the working groups that we've set up recently is looking at some sort of assessment, some sort of patient outcome measure that can be used, Mm. which will be used certainly in secondary and tertiary care Mm. and that's a joint Mm. project, the BPS. Hmm. The Faculty of Pain Medicine and NICE have actually um, seconded someone to work with us on that project. Good. That would be some sort of holistic measure, sure. simpler than the McGill though.
0: Well, let's turn to the third member of our little panel, Heather Wallace. You are a patient. When did you turn from being a patient to a person? How did you get involved with this?
3: I was developed pain when I was very young. I, I couldn't even describe it as pain, I just felt very strange. but I was gradually being told that there was nothing wrong with me, um, that it was all in my mind, and the problem was nobody helped me. You know, I, I used to go home thinking, if it's all in my mind, and I did kind of believe that because i have been brought up to believe what your doctor said, I used to lie in bed thinking, why am I doing this to myself? I'm destroying my life. Why am I doing this to myself? And nobody helped me with the answer to that. Anyway, it did get quite bad and I was felt bullied. I can remember at some point, particularly once I actually got under, in fact, it was a psychologist who had trained in Canada on a pain management program. I'd gone to him for hypnosis for my pain. He actually said to me, I think you've got nerve pain. So that got it sorted. And then there was this sense, nobody does that to me. Today people treat me like that I'm afraid it was a bit you know I'm going to get my own back here but um, there was no point in carrying on a situation of conflict because we couldn't really solve the problem of pain and it was destroying if you didn't get help it was destroying your life so the solution really was to get doctors who understood pain were interested in pain We're interested in helping you restore your life and patients working together to really just bring about change (coughs) that would help patients in the long run. How
0: revolutionary was that, Andrew? Well, actually,
1: when you started that question before you actually specifically asked
0: Heather, I was thinking to
1: myself, well, I, I sort of was a junior doctor in 1984, and that's when I got involved in pain. And I was thinking, well, as far as I was concerned, I was always working with individuals uh, living with pain, although that terminology has become much more common now as a, a doctor and that, the reason I got involved was I was work, working on the chest cancer wards and slowly morphine had just been developed and it was interesting that people didn't really know how to use the medication and uh, things haven't changed much in some ways, you know, so that's why I got involved because I said well actually we've got people here living with pain It was a particular group of people who were potentially dying in pain as well. Um, And so for me, I've always seen it in that way. But if you look at how things are talked about nowadays, there is a much stronger group. I mean, that's what the British Pain Society represents, is the multidisciplinary pain teams. And it's the only society that has the mandate to do that because actually our membership is of psychologists that you've alluded to, as well as pain management physiotherapists which help with the physical disability side of it as well as the pain doctors and so we work as, as a group and I did my MD thesis and my research with Pat Wall as in in and Wall and so on and so and then Steve McMahon and Clifford Wolfe and so on so th- in fact the history from when Sir Michael uh, was telling his story I was sort of being locked into the next stage really yes, which was yeah. understanding the neurological mechanisms for why people like Heather have nerve pain, and why, when you do an epidural, or why the psychological things switch on these pain memories, and so on. So that was the research, and that was in the 1990s. So uh, having trained as an anesthetist, which was the only way to become a pain doctor, in what you know to be guaranteed, was you had to train as an anesthetist. So I did all my higher qualifications, anaesthesia, and then after about four years of being a consultant, I gave up anaesthetics and became full time in pain medicine and then from an early stage I was a part of the British Pain Society Um, I can remember the first meetings and so on so I was always involved in that culture of working with
2: people living in pain rather than people who we treat with pain You raised an interesting point came to mind about pain what is pain and most people say it is a symptom of something but there was a big argument in the early 1990s that went on right up to WHO about pain as an illness. Pain itself can be an illness, and WHO wouldn't accept that for a long time. Eventually they did, so it is now accepted that pain need not be a symptom of something else. It can arise de novo as really a malfunction of the nervous system, if you like, in one way or another. You might say, well, it's just a symptom of the malfunction of the nervous system, but that's not quite really what it means.
0: Heather, as a person with pain and driving force of pain concern, what difference would that make?
3: Well, you've got something real, so it, it helps counter that disbelief, because when you're producing pain and you haven't got the tumour or the whatever the doctor can see and investigate, then you're rather left wondering what's wrong with you. So I think it's about being believed and also being able to come to terms and to a sense of peace that you don't have to be searching for a diagnosis anymore and that's really helpful because that allows you the energy to actually start dealing with the problem that you've you've got living with what's effective. You have to learn it's incurable and I think that's another stage of difficulty but, but at least you know what you've got to deal with.
2: I think one of the points really comes out of those comments is that often patients would turn up out of the clinic saying, uh, people say it's all in my head, what's really wrong with me And it, it's really not a diagnosis, it's a doctor who doesn't really understand what we've just been talking about, that is that the pain could be a disorder in its own right. I don't think that has completely filtered through. It takes me on another step to an issue that we have still to solve and that's the teaching of medical students about pain. I think they are still very poorly educated when it comes yeah, to so pain. Yeah, the, the fa-
1: right? so the, the Faculty of Pain Medicine, which is part of the Royal College yes. of Onestis, they, they, uh, they now have inroads into a number of universities yeah. uh, where they're educating students. Mm. But, but the, the, sort of the, the general sort of quote is that actually medical students get uh, less training in pain medicine than vets do.
2: Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, it's and, true.
1: And, and <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that is changing, but uh, but uh, building on what Heather has said uh. as well, I think providing the patient is open to it, one of the most rewarding things that they find by coming to a clinic such as the one I run is actually an explanation. Yeah. 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 And we can explain things, and 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 sometimes. Yes, you have to say, I don't understand that, but actually some really weird and wonderful symptoms that patients have, you can quite often explain them in terms of the function of the nervous system. So if you look at associations and conditions, patients with bladder pain syndrome often have widespread muscular fibromyalgia type symptoms. They also have weird things like low thyroid function and dry eyes, which are related to because the nervous system controls Mm. the Mm. immune system, so they get uh, autoimmune disorder type problems, which which cause strange sensations which are nothing to do with the main focus of the pain, which may be in the pelvis, and they've got all these other things. Mm. And that's what working with Pat Wall and Steve McMahon and so on actually, you know, when I started as a consultant and I was asked to see pelvic pain patients, I could understand all these more weird and won- wonderful and things, things yes. and say to a patient well actually you're not as crazy as you think yeah. that some of these things actually do have a basis and whereas maybe I can't explain everything. I can explain a lot of things which other doctors have actually labelled you in some way as being a... Uh, labelled is the word. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I hate labels.
2: Yeah. And and you have really from what you have said have pointed that out. Yes. That's how you were treated for oh, yes. quite a long time. really,
3: it was so mm. destructive for me because... You know, that self-doubt, self-blame. It was quite a burden for me, Mm. and there was no answer. Mm. And you had to, uh, because I was young with pain, you soon learned you lost your friends if you moaned about this. Mm. So you were really stuck.
1: Following on from that, the World Health Authority, they're now looking at their classification system, and in the ICD-11, the next classification system, Uh there will be pain as a condition no, in definitely. the classification, so it will now be separated out. Um, the other thing which I, I sometimes upset my neurologists with, but to explain what you're talking about, as pain as a symptom versus pain as a condition, coming back to sort of your story about the epileptic in a sense, epilepsy is a condition and fitting, even yes. though my neurologists don't like the term fitting, fitting is like the symptom as it were, and you, you can immediately see that there are two things, but the problem with pain is pain the term can describe a symptom and it can describe the condition. And, that, and that's been one of the problems. And I don't think there's any way around that. I can't think of, of a different term that we would use. Um, so we're slightly stuck with that, but you but, but need to separate them out in the same way as you might say, well, an epileptic fit, the fitting is the symptom, whereas the condition is epilepsy. Mm. And in some cases, there may be an underlying cause, like a tumor, what you can understand and in other cases the epilepsy may be a neurological functional
2: disorder. Just going back to the lady who had the seizures or the fits, uh, the reason she had them was because we didn't realise that she was taking large doses of barbiturates and she Mm. didn't get any when she was admitted Mm. and it was in effect, the fits were a symptom Of barbiturate withdrawal. And that
1: again raises the issue about the harm that we can do by treating the symptom rather than treating the patient as a whole. So we're now obviously going into these areas where a lot of the things that patients are complaining about, a lot of the symptoms are actually generated by the intervention, whether it be medical intervention or whatever. I mean, I think all interventions, even psychological ones, have risks that uh, we need to be aware of. Uh, Well, you're,
2: you're changing the system. Even changing, with yeah. psychological treatments, you're changing
0: yeah. the system deliberately, actually. So what we were saying is that the, patient, the person with pain is so important. What involvement does a person in pain have within the system, if you like? So there are certain uh, separate
1: patient agencies, but then within the British Pain Society, we have the Patient Liaison Committee And I think what is a significant development to that has also been the patient reference group. So we're we're linked into some 600 individuals. So that group can help inform the professionals and perhaps Heather would like to talk a bit about her experience in that.
3: Well, it was Sir Michael who took the initiative to say you'd like the society to look into setting up a patient Mm -hmm. liaison group. So, I think we spent quite a few months working on that. Yes. I can't remember how I was Beverly drawn into that team. Was
2: involved. Beverly yes. Collett was involved in yes. that. Yes. And Mrs. Gaffin became the first
3: yes. chairman. And indeed, I still group. work with her. She's a trustee now of Pain Concern. So, we've formed a long, continuous relationship. Yes. And in the initial days, we had to tread very carefully because we were breaking new ground, and a lot of healthcare professionals did not feel that there was a role for patients within a professional society. And I think we succeeded in that because we were not too threatening. That was what we aimed to achieve so that we would become accepted. And that has happened. And I think now the society would simply not be without... No, no,
1: completely. And in fact, I would like... I've got my own ideas about further developing that. And I don't know, Heather, if you've got any... Uh, thoughts that you'd like to give me, any suggestions about how you feel that patients should be more involved?
3: I think closer cooperation, I think the pain world is so small and so vulnerable um, compared to the big conditions, cancer and what nots out there which are very very worthy, very important but pain is also important to people's quality of life. And I think it is that quality of life we're trying to restore. I, think, I think, So can I, can coming I, together will make us more powerful.
1: Yeah, and, but I think also you're slightly belittling or downgrading the, the level of the problem because we, you know, the National Pain Audit and so on showed that living with pain, that your quality of life can be worse. Mm-hmm. Not everyone, but can be worse than living with any other condition and if we also take on board actually about half the population over the age of 50 have chronic or pain, persistent pain you know lasting for more than three months at a time then actually it's a big problem but it is not maybe if I dare use the word as sexy as some of the uh, more emotive type of things. One of the things has been suggested and I've been dwelling about and may happen during my presidency depending on other people's views and politics would be to expand the reference group to maybe uh, friends of the British Pain Society. Change it that, that terminology uh, would be that you would have the professional section, but then you would have the friends of the society, as well as the patient liaison committee, which would be the direct body responsible for coordinating the viewpoints of, of, of the patients. So I was slightly looking at maybe strengthening the relationship with the patients. And maybe it's quite nice to have in this room both for Michael and myself here with the, and, and yourself. And
3: I think policy needs to be strengthened and that's where you do need to bring people together. The, there is the chronic pain policy coalition and mm. that really has a really important role to play in this. And, uh, you know, getting parliamentarians on board, mm. getting the Department of Health on board and getting clinical guidelines adopted perhaps voluntarily, but just mandatory, so, this is how you treat pain.
1: I strongly agree with you, that's why we set up the coalition, the, which is uh, a group we meet every four or five times a year, which is the Chronic Pain Policy Coalition, the Faculty of Pain Medicine of the Royal College of Genesis, the British Pain Society, and because of its uh, uh, the, the politics around it, the NHS England Clinical Reference Group is co-opted to that. Patients on that have been represented through the BPS and there are ongoing conversations as to whether or not there should be a direct patient agency on that other than through the BPS at the moment. And there is an argument for strengthening that, side of because what you say is working together is key. Uh, if we're fragmented,
0: then we won't survive. I'm very conscious of the time. Can we just finish off? Firstly, congratulations on 50 years of the British Pain Society. I think we know where you started and where you are now. Well, where we are now because patients are persons with pain and we're part of the team. Where would we like to be in the future?
1: I think one of my driving forces, because before I became president of this society, I was chair of the clinical reference group for NHS specialised services and quite aware that there's a dearth of services, but we're also aware that hospitals cannot provide if you look into, take into account you know, the instance of pain and the figures vary, but you know it's, suffering from pain is quite significant there's no way hospitals will be able to take on board all of that and so it comes back to the education is key so it really is important that we educate all medical professionals into the complex dynamics of living with pain. And then to look at networks of services, and that was my real driving force when I was chair of the clinical reference group, was I envisaged that we would have in England, which is what was based on that, we'd have maybe six specialized services or 12 specialized services which would work with district general hospital services, which would work with community services and we would have a true network. So what I would like to see in the next 10 years, because I think it's certainly doable in 10 years, but it may take 25 or 50 years, is that you have a network of services so that the person living in pain has someone to turn to, they see the right person at the right time in the right place. So it should be local where possible but obviously the more complex patients may need to go to the more specialised services. So in terms of the future for provision of services, that's what I think needs to happen. A much wider education and a much wider uh, ability for the primary community care services to support patients. The other
2: dimension is of course educating the public which is what pain concern is all about. They need to be educated. Uh, over and above so, the doctors. So that
1: brings us to the British Pain Society, <laughs>
2: yes. in, in a sense, and, and
1: when I became president with all the problems that the society is navigating at the moment, which, yes. which we're all sort of navigating in one way or the other, with current politics, is what is the role of the society? Mm-hmm. And we've looked at our values, we've looked at our mandate mm-hmm. and so on, and I think... Uh, raising awareness of pain. So the big thing that we're launching at this 50th anniversary is our national awareness campaign Mm -hmm. and we've had a number of meetings about that. It's taken three or four years to get to where we are at the moment so we've now got the posters which I hope that all those living with pain will share on social media to raise the awareness. Each poster has a poignant point, Mm -hmm. you know, it sort of makes a clear statement about something to do with the living suffering of chronic pain and so on and, and it covers war veterans, it covers women, it covers children, it covers all ethnicities and specific problems and so on, and that will develop. So that will be a part of our education problem, raising awareness, but also on the back of that we're raising awareness of what the British Pain Society does through its membership, so the British Pain Society supports its members to actually provide services for those living with pain. There is no doubt, you know, we have to accept that we need uh, financial responsibility nowadays and so I'm hoping that that awareness campaign will also bring in more money because the British Pain Society has done over the past 10, 20 years particularly and Sir Michael Bond has been involved more recently than when he was president originally and sees the huge amount of work that's now done Mm. with government, with NICE, with the Royal Colleges, uh, with patient support groups, all of which we can't do without money and industry is shrinking in terms of what it's in providing. And so, where would I like to see the British Pain Society? I'd like to see independent of industry, financially, so that we can act with financial stability through raising awareness of what we do to support those living with pain, so that we're in a position to actually continue drawing up guidelines, steering agencies such as NICE and the government and so on, to try and provide that network of services, that sort of support which patients need.
3: Public awareness is really <clears throat> important. I mean, there has been an initiative, and indeed there was a declaration in Montreal a few years ago, mm. that that pain treatment, um, pain assessment and treatment, is actually a basic human right. right. And it would be wonderful to have that culture throughout. And indeed, the focus from treating the complex pain patient to actually moving towards prevention, of that occurring in the first place and I think science is moving that way I'm not convinced you're there yet but Uh, 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 that's really...
1: Earlier education and understanding will prevent a lot of of the chronicity Mm. and one of the things that was interesting when I was chair of the clinical reference group is that we managed to get pain management as being a cornerstone service therefore if you have a specialised services for kidneys or brains or whatever it may be, you can't have a service without a pain service linked to you. But I I agree completely with Heather, is that the more that we sort of chivvy away at this, the more likely we can prevent chronicity by actually providing earlier support.
2: And that is becoming increasingly relevant as one of them, the population grows even older. because. There are increasing infirmities of all kinds amongst the elderly, and if we can anticipate some of those, we may be able to reduce them.
0: In this special edition of Airing Pain to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the British Pain Society, I was talking with Dr Andrew Baranovsky, President of the British Pain Society, Professor Sir Michael Bond, and Pain Concerns Heather Wallace. You can find out more about the work of the British Pain Society at BritishPainSociety.org. This programme was produced by Pain Concern and you can find more details about Pain Concern at their website, which is PainConcern.org.uk.